Well, thank you for that. Uh, when my son uh, was four years of age, we were doing some last-minute Christmas shopping in one of these big box department stores, and it was crowded and busy, and so I'm holding his hand, making sure he didn't get lost. And at some point in all of it, he looked at me and said, Dad, I really need to go to the bathroom. Well, if you're a parent and you hear that word really, uh, you know there's a short window, and so I'm trying to find the bathroom frantically. And uh, I asked this employee, she said, oh, it's, it's right over there. Well, the only unfortunate thing about right over there was we had to walk through the women's underwear section to get there. So I'm walking with my head down, doing my best not to make eye contact with anyone or anything for that matter. And my boy suddenly says, Dad, look, which is the most dangerous thing you can say in that section of the store, especially when your dad's a preacher, right? And so I kind of hesitantly look up, and in that moment, he lets go of my hand, takes off front of like a little jackrabbit, little bolt of lightning through the racks of unmentionables, and loved to play hide-and-seek. And I'm like, buddy, not here, not now. And so I'm calling his name, and all these women are kind of giggling. They're seeing what's happening to me. And that's when I see him. Uh, my boy has climbed up on a sales table, and he has taken, excuse me, a bra. He's got it above his head. And with all of the excitement that a little four-year-old can muster, he said, Dad, on Tom and Jerry, they use these as parachutes. <laughs> and he runs and jumps off the table and puts the old parachute to the test. And I am mortified. I turn every shade of red imaginable. I can't leave him there. He's mine. So I scoop him up. And that's when I heard it. A female voice behind me said, hey, aren't you the preacher at Southland Christian Church? And I quickly said, no, ma'am. My name is Jason Strand. I work at a church up in Minnesota. Check us out if you're up there sometime on vacation. You know, it wasn't the first time, nor will it be the last time, that I have to manage this tension in my head and heart between irritation and indignation. Irritation, as you know, is the small stuff. It's that mosquito on a hot summer's day that won't leave you alone. It's that slow driver in the left lane on I-94 this morning, all right? It, 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 it's that referee who makes a bad call at the Vikings game. It's not catastrophic, it's not the end of life, but it just gets under the skin and it pesters and it bothers. Indignation is a more intense expression of anger. It's when you see a video posted of an older person being jumped or mugged on a sidewalk, completely helpless, completely defenseless, and the justice side of your wiring either wants to retaliate or figure out another way to make it right. And what's interesting is what sits between those two. What sits between indignation and irritation is frustration. And that's a more accurate description of what I was feeling as a parent in that moment when my son wasn't doing what I wanted him to do. And what's interesting, too, is that in our relational world, we are going to ping pong back and forth between frustration and satisfaction, sometimes in the same hour with the same person. It's kind of like this kid who was frustrated because his parents wouldn't let him go to a scary movie. But then they, they caved after all of his begging and pleading, and he moved from frustration to satisfaction. But then he moved back to frustration when his parents did this to him. Take a look. Last night, a boy stayed up late 
to watch Texas Chainsaw Cheerleader Massacre. This morning, we found them huddled together under the blankets in one bed, all the lights on. Dad just can't miss this kind of chance to wake the boys. Dad of the year, uh, my opinion, <laughs> vote two. You know, if there was anyone in the Bible who, who could write a PhD dissertation on the subject of frustration, it, it would be Moses. Remember, we had a front row seat when he killed an Egyptian soldier with his bare hands. We were there when his blood boiled over, and man, he, he smashed the Ten Commandments on the ground, shattering them into pieces. We were in the room when we heard that his sister died. And his brother dies. And on top of all of that, he's been leading 1.8 million people in the Sinai Peninsula. If you've never seen it, it is an uninhabitable desert. No man's land, wasteland. You wouldn't want to be there. And then to make matters even worse than that, they've run out of water. More than a million people don't have anything to drink, nor do their livestock. So that's why Numbers chapter 20 sets the stage for us this way. It says, the people blamed Moses and said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers, why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness to die, along with all of our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain, no figs, no grapes, no pomegranates, and no water to drink. Frustration, frustration, frustration. But to Moses' credit, before he blasts off, he knows he needs to count down. He knows he needs to respond and not react. So he doesn't say anything to the people who are griping. Instead, he goes into the tabernacle to pray. And before he can say anything to God, God says this to him. He says, you and Aaron must take the staff, the wooden stick that he was holding, and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, speak to the rock over there. I want you to notice that. Speak to the rock over there. And it will pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. So God looks at Moses and says, hey, this isn't your problem, buddy. It's my problem. You didn't lead the people out of Egypt. I did. So here's what I'm going to do for you and the people of Israel. I'm going to crack that cliff open. And water's going to gush out. Enough water for everyone to be satisfied. The man Moses is a lot like me. He doesn't listen. And he doesn't trust, and he doesn't obey. Instead, he goes back and he says, listen, you rebels, he shouted. Must we, I love the inclusion of that, must we bring you water from this rock? Then Moses raised his hand, and did he speak to the rock? No, he struck the rock twice with the staff, and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. Eleanor Roosevelt wisely said, anger is one letter short of danger. Man, if only she had been there to whisper in Moses' ear, I don't think this is a good idea, buddy. But she wasn't. Now, the interesting thing is, as the people are excitedly, joyfully filling up their Nalgene bottles and their Yeti coolers with water, 
God says, hey, buddy, I need to talk to you over here in private, just you and me. So Moses makes his way over there, and God says, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. Indeed, anger is one letter short of danger. Now, the interesting thing is that it's not just frustration in our relational world. Sometimes it's frustration in our situational world. I was in an airport just a couple days ago, and I was with thousands of Taylor Swift fans <laughs> coming to Minnesota, descending on Minneapolis, and many of them were frustrated because their flights were being delayed and canceled. And it reminded me of a story I read years ago from a woman who had something similar going on in an airport. She writes this. I was between flights at an airport, so I went in a store and bought a small package of cookies. I sat down and began reading a newspaper. And gradually, I became aware of a rustling noise from behind my newspaper. I was flabbergasted to see a neatly dressed man helping himself to my cookies. Now, not wanting to make a scene, I leaned over and took a cookie for myself. A minute or two passed, and then came more rustling. He was helping himself to another one of my cookies, so I grabbed another one. This went on until we were down to the last cookie, which the man broke in two. He pushed half across to me, ate the other half, and then he left. When my flight was announced, I opened my handbag to get my ticket. To my shock and embarrassment, there I found my pack of unopened cookies. <laughs> not only had he not been eating my cookies, I had been eating his cookies. Oh. So, here's my question for today. Sincerely, how do we collectively handle frustration in a productive manner? Well, the first step is this. Focus on good things, not bad things. Uh, social media is going to make that a challenge for you. The nightly news will make that a challenge for you. Matter of fact, the average American complains 15 hours per month to a spouse, a coworker, or a friend. Anyone who will listen to us, that means we waste seven and a half days per year complaining about the bad things instead of celebrating the good things in our lives. So here's what I want to do. A little crowd participation in all the campuses. I'm going to steer our attention towards some smaller good things that maybe we lose sight of in the day-to-day. -day. I'm curious, by show of hands, how many of you have a garage door opener in your car? Let's see them. Look around, okay? Man, we're rich. <laughs> you just push a button and your door magically goes up and mysteriously comes back down and you don't have to deal with those crazy, nosy neighbors. It's amazing. How many of you own a toothbrush? Let's see them, okay? How many of you are glad the person sitting next to you owns one, right? After all those cups of coffee? Yeah, I'm with you. Okay, how many of you own a spoon, at least one? This is amazing. This is a little invention. We don't have to eat our cinnamon toast crunch with our bare hands, all right? This is a, a cereal spoon, and this is an ice cream spoon, okay? <laughs> I came from Kentucky to Minnesota to make sure you have your priorities right, okay? <laughs> Dairy Queen is proof there's a God, and it's also proof that he loves us very much. So go worship today and get yourself a dip cone or a blizzard. Now, I had the privilege, and I use that word sincerely, I had the privilege of living and working in the country of Haiti for four years. Poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. That's not to downplay poverty in the United States. Poverty is poverty. It's just we don't have it to the degree nor the scale that you see in a place like Haiti. 
And so one morning I came out of my house, I'm a school teacher, I was preparing to go to school and I found two men in their underwear, emaciated, thin, dirty, flies, sweat on them, eating macaroni and cheese out of my garbage that I'd thrown out days earlier. And when I saw them, when I locked eyes with them, they panicked. And in shame, both heads went down, arms went up, and they pleaded. They begged me, don't, don't, don't call the police. And I begged them, oh, please forgive me for my excess, for my lack of generosity, for my lack of hospitality. There's a woman in Long Island, New York, named Sarah. And someone posted an anonymous letter on her front door that said, take your Christmas lights down, exclamation point. It's Valentine's Day, exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. And the author of that note didn't know that Sarah had been caring for her dad and her aunt, both of whom were wrestling with complications from COVID, both of whom would later pass away. So Sarah graciously posted something on her Facebook page for her neighbors to reach. She said, I'm so sorry about my Christmas lights. Once I'm on the other side of these funerals and have these estates figured out, I promise I will take my lights down. Oh, our neighbors felt terrible. They didn't know. And so they started bombarding her with gift cards to restaurants and cooking meals for her family. And then in a beautiful sign and show of solidarity, all of her neighbors put their Christmas lights back up. And they left them up until June. The Bible teaches that our God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he invites us to think that way and to live that way as well. And there are people who are doing it. I read about two men who came out of a grocery store after a torrential downpour of rain. And there was an older woman trying to get in her car, huge mud puddle next to it. And so they jumped into action and they backed up their box truck and lowered the lift gate. And they created a little bridge for her to be able to get into her car without getting her socks and shoes wet. I get it. I'm watching the same news you're watching. Scales have definitely tipped in our society, and there's plenty of bad. I'm not denying that. I'm just inviting all of us today to find the good this week and stay focused on the good and watch what happens to your blood pressure. Next, focus on eternal things, not earthly things. Two cousins got into a fight in their grandmother's kitchen in Fort Myers, Florida. It spilled out into the front yard. Police had to be called because of the commotion. And I want to just read two sentences from the nightly news that were shared. Garcia was charged with aggravated battery in connection with an altercation with his cousin who sustained injuries from a pocket knife. Authorities and witnesses confirmed that the argument was over whether almond milk was superior to whole milk. <laughs> now, I love my 2%, passionate about it, but if you like 1% or skim, I'm not going to stab you, all right? I'm not. <laughs> not at all. So here's my question. When you read this story about Moses and other stories about him, have you ever wondered what he did with that wooden stick that he hit the rock with? I picture it just putting it in the bed of his pickup truck and leaving it there. Or the fragments from the Ten Commandments that he slammed on the ground when he lost his cool. I picture him taking a few of those and just putting them in the drawer next to his toothbrush. Visible, daily, tangible reminder to himself that some things in life are just not worth getting angry over. That's why Will Rogers famously said, people who fly into a rage rarely make a good landing. <laughs> 
And maybe that same sentiment is what motivated the Apostle Paul to take pen and put it to paper and say, hey, think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Here's how you do that. This week, when someone cuts you off in traffic, or you burn the roof of your mouth on something hot, or you stub your toe on a piece of furniture, say to yourself, this is a temporary pain, not a permanent pain. And then immediately look for the sun in the sky. This is going to sound crazy, but you need to orient yourself with the sun and remind yourself that the sun always rises in the east and always sets in the west. And when you're having an aggravating, annoying, horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day, you find the sun and you remind yourself that the quickest way to get out of the darkness you find yourself in is not to head west towards the setting sun, but to head east through the darkness and towards the rising sun. Because the promise of a new day always has the potential of it being a better day. This is why the psalmist said joy or weeping may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And some of you today are there. You're in the middle of the emotional setback of a miscarriage. I'm sorry. Others of you are battling a custody situation. Some of you are fighting an addiction where a loved one is, your tank's empty. What I encourage everyone to do is just find a piece of paper or a post-it note and put this where you can see it. Just write this truth out. You have more life ahead of you than behind you. That's true for all of us who are followers of Jesus. And when I read this story about Moses, I realize he's north of 100 years of age. Did you ever think maybe he's just hungry? Like maybe he just needs a Snickers. I get like that. When I'm, when I'm hungry, man, I get grouchy and I get tired. But you know what else I've learned? <laughs> I'm the source of most of my own frustration. I can't always blame it on other people. I have these perfectionistic tendencies. And so my tendency is to, to overcommit and overschedule. And when I don't meet my own expectations, I feel like a failure. And Satan loves to exacerbate that. So I came here today just to remind you of an important reality, that God's bucket of forgiveness is always bigger than your bucket of failure. His bucket of joy is always bigger than your bucket of sadness. His bucket of hope, healing, and help is always bigger than your bucket of hurt. But I don't want to minimize that hurt because I know what it does to the heart. So let me illustrate this in a unique way. Psychologists often refer to anger, which is a fancier way of talking about, oops, talking about uh, frustration. They talk about anger as the second emotion. And that's because it's easier to access. When you're hurt, you don't always know how to express it, but anger, you can express that. And for a lot of you here today, you were cheated out of a childhood. Others of you, it's something someone said about you or did to you And that sadness turned to anger. It starts as a spark in the heart, but over time it festers and it grows. And the Bible says it can become a a destructive wildfire. And as mature adults, we have an opportunity. We can either pour gasoline on this fire or we can pour water on it. Let me describe the water side of things. You come to Eagle Brook and, man, Jason preaches a phenomenal sermon on forgiveness. And you know you need to forgive the person who has made you so angry. And so you give yourself space and time, maybe even go see a counselor, and you work through the steps, and you forgive. (laughs) 
But then you bump into the person again. Or someone posts something nice about them on social media, and you're like, do you know what they did to me? And it gets relit in the human heart, and there it is again. But you come back to Eagle Brook, and you hear John or you hear Ryan preach a good sermon on how Jesus went to a cross to forgive not just your sin, but all sin. And so you recognize that you'll never have to forgive another person as much as God has forgiven you. The other thing you realize is that when you forgive someone, you're not only giving them freedom, you're giving yourself freedom. You don't want to be tethered to the person who hurt you and be held hostage to them. So again, you work through the steps. It's not always easy. But then you wake up in the middle of the night, and there's their face. And you have these fake conversations and these fake confrontations. You have to forgive them again. So what do we really do with it? Well, the world gives you two options. It says you can express it. You can punch things, yell at things, throw things, kick things. That's one option. Or you can repress it. Many of you grew up in homes where your parents did this. You sweep it under the rug. You hide it in the attic or the closet or the basement. And you just act like it didn't happen. You pretend that there there was no negative impact on your life. But the Bible says the best option is not to express or repress, but to confess it. To surrender the memory and the emotion to a loving God whose intentions towards you are always good, who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And he'll be able to do something you can't do for yourself, which is help you begin to heal. My mom, wonderful woman, used to sing this song to me and my siblings and the children's lyrics were, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. 25 years ago, I found the bottom of the proverbial barrel. I was living in Haiti, and I'd come off my second battle with malaria, prize fight with the mosquitoes. They won, I lost. And I not only lost weight and sleep, I lost perspective. You ever lose perspective? started to feel sorry for myself. I started to get angry, and I just wanted to quit and throw in the towel and come back home, and God knew that. So this Haitian pastor invites me to preach in his little home church up in the mountains, remote area of the island, and so I agreed, and I walk up there on a Friday, begin the hike. It takes all day. I finally get up there in the evening, and there's this makeshift church building. They've done what they can. They've stacked rocks and created four corners. There's no walls. There's just tin roof. And they've taken these logs to make these benches, but there's no backs on them. And as the sun set, people started to come from all over. It was amazing to me. I'm like, wow. And they packed under this tent, and then they surrounded it. I mean, it was standing room only. And I'm standing in the very back, and they begin to sing as it gets dark. I've never heard anything like it, even to this day. The tone, the posture that these beautiful people took Help me realize that they need heaven to be real because of their poverty. And they believe, you can see it, that God's throne is bolted to the ground and there's no one who's going to knock him off of it. And they sang for two or three hours. And then they had this time of testimony. These people who have no material possessions, no earthly wealth, they were just talking about how good God had been to them, how faithful he was and loving them and providing for them. Then they prayed. Everybody went to their knees and then they stood back up in arms and started dancing and clapping and singing again. An hour later, four hours into this church service, they say, it's your turn to to preach. (laughs) 
And I'm like, what am I going to teach these good people? But I get up there and preach my sermon. I go to the back again, and they start singing and clapping and dancing again and rejoicing. And then the, the leader of the church pointed to me again and said, preach again. <laughs> never happened. I've never had an encore. It was kind of a fun moment. <laughs> my first one wasn't even that good, so I preached the second one. It wasn't much better, but I preached, and six hours later, the service ended. They lead me to this little mud-baked thatch roof hut. And I roll out my bedding, set my flashlight out, and I take my shirt off, and I'm spraying down with mosquito repellent, which is my nightly routine. And the owner of the hut, a Haitian man, comes in with a lantern, and he, he laughs, which is common when I take my shirt off in public. And so I didn't think much of it. And he said, oh, you won't need that. We don't have mosquitoes at this elevation. Oh, I was so glad. I thought, I'm going to get my first good night's sleep in years. And then he smiled and smirked, and as he was walking out, perfect comedic timing, he said, we don't have mosquitoes, we have rats. <laughs> and I thought, maybe I missed something in translation and French, and so I thought, what in the world? So I lay down, and no sooner did I clicked off my flashlight, it sounded like someone was taking a bag of potato chips and just squeezing it. So I look up into the thatch, I click my flashlight back on, and there's dozens of eyes. And these rats are coming down out of this hut. And so, no joke, this is how God works it starts to rain outside. And I mean raining cats and dogs. It's a tropical storm. And so I'm standing there holding my bedding in this hut as these rats are using this area as a superhighway. And I didn't, I didn't get a, a minute of sleep, not a minute. And the next day, my buddy and I were led back to the church to teach. And we teach the whole day from the Bible. And then they finally want to feed us. We haven't eaten a thing, haven't slept so they, they serve us a part of a goat that I don't think God intended people to eat. I really don't even to this day, but we smile and eat it. And then they give me a glass of water that's a different shade of clear than I'm familiar with. And so I'm drinking liquid parasite and I know it. And I go back to the church building and we preach that night and we go back to the hut and we have another sleepless night with the rats. 48 hours, no sleep, no food. And it's Easter Sunday. And any time you preach on the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, any time you put the love of God in front of people, they respond. These people come forward for an invitation, five of them to be baptized. And I'm looking everywhere for somewhere to take them to be baptized. And this older lady sees my confusion. She said, oh, it's right over there, honey. Well, right over there, we walked two and a half hours up one hill and down another to get to this watering hole. And it's green it's thick. There are animals in it. There are trucks being washed in it. And these people don't care. They're kicking off their shoes and socks and hopping in. And I'm praying. And they look at me in motion for me to come. And so when in Rome, I jump in with them. And right then I heard it. 2,000 miles from my hometown in Missouri. I could hear my mom singing, John, oh, be careful. Little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. Well, be careful, little eyes, what you see. I'd lost sight of Jesus. It's easy to do. And when you lose sight of Jesus, you get frustrated. And it becomes all about you. <laughs> but I found him again. And the beautiful, joyful faces of these people as I buried them in the waters of baptism and raised them to a brand new life in Christ. The smiles on their faces told me they didn't care about the parasites in the water, the rats in the hut, or the wooden benches they had to sit on. They were just glad to know that God loved them. This week, focus on good things, not bad things.
Focus on eternal things, not earthly things. And before your feet hit the ground every morning, just say, I've got way more life, way more life ahead of me than behind me. And watch what happens to your perspective. Let me pray for us. Good Father, thank you for calling us your sons and daughters, for loving us, for making us your cherished and chosen children. That's who we are. We celebrate that. Father, we want to live in that reality every day this week. Help us, God, to not let who we are be defined by what we do, <laughs> but to let who we are define what we do. And I pray, God, this week we just stay focused on people, people you put right in front of us that we can love in unconditional ways, the ways, way you've loved us. Give us patience, give us kindness, give us gentleness, give us the ability to listen really well and to be very attentive knowing, God, that that's the way you treat us. You're not angry. You're not frustrated with us. You're not disappointed. You love us. And you just want us to take that love and express it to others. So, Father, help us to do that. At the same time, my heart breaks because I know I have brothers and sisters in this room and at other campuses who are struggling today. And I pray, Father, that you begin the healing process. Help them, God, to lay down whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever anger or sadness they're dealing with, and to come to you so that you can begin to mend their broken hearts. Father, we're glad, oh, so glad to be a part of your family. I pray your richest blessing over this church as it continues to reach and love the state of Minnesota on your behalf and for your glory. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, there are going to be people down front. We'd love to pray with you if you need prayer today. Otherwise, have a great week.